Thank you for the uh, VBS. <laughs> well, we have been, uh, hopefully, I've been, in, I've been enjoying our time. I hope you guys have been as well. Um, <laughs> and last, uh, this morning, we were talking a little bit about um, the importance of uh, an integrated understanding of the universe or the fact that we live in an integrated universe. And I started out by telling you a little bit about uh, my own experience, recognizing that I didn't feel as if I had a place, as if there wasn't a, a, an integrated universe into which I personally fit. Um, and, and here's what changed for me. A friend from my soccer team, ninth grade, Kyle said, hey, you should come to church with me. And I was like, Kyle, you know I'm an atheist, right? And he's like, yeah, but we're going roller skating. And I was like, I do like roller skating. <laughs> <laughs> and so he invited me to come along and, and uh, go roller skating with his youth group. And there was a sign at the back, um, a place to sign up if you wanted to go on a retreat. And I was like, I've never been on a retreat before. And he's like, yeah, but it's a disco retreat. I was like, I do like disco. <laughs> and so I signed up and went on a disco retreat. And God, uh, and, and through the, the people there, was introduced to Jesus and discovered, before I understood anything about the integrating point, uh, the, the integrated universe, found Jesus, who is the one that holds it all together. And I worked my way out from there to come to discover other aspects of the universe. Now, but because God created a world that does all fit together, because he created a world that is a poetic masterpiece, because he created a world that, that, does, uh, that does link all together and fit and it has a place for everyone, meeting Jesus was the beginning and what was uh, enough in the long run. Now, uh, I work in movies and have, have uh, worked in movies and have been talking about different movies and, and figure why stop. <laughs> Here's a little known fact. The zombie, as we currently know, was created by a Christian. Not the, I mean, the idea of the zombie. Not a real zombie. That was created by the mall. But <laughs> this, uh, there was a, a director, he was a young director, young, uh, raised in a Christian home, and he was actually walking through a mall in the 60s. And he was this new mall, everybody was really excited about it, brand new stores everywhere. You may have never ever seen a brand new mall because now they're all old and barely holding together. Um, but he was walking through a mall and he was watching people go store to store to store and uh, take in the sights and the sounds and the advertisements. And he said, you know, if we're not careful, this could be bad for us. If we don't begin thinking about taking care of our souls... Something might go wrong. And as he was walking out of the mall, he had the idea for a monster movie of what would a body without a soul be like? And he said, 
Well, it would be like this mall. Well, what would it eat? Brains. <laughs> and so he came up with this idea for a monster movie. He began writing this, this movie with these bodiless, uh, bodies without souls wandering through a mall, grabbing people, eating their brains. And, and uh, he said that would make a great monster movie. Now, all they could afford was an old broken down barn. And so the first zombie movie was inspired by that, uh, and, uh, but it was filmed in a barn because 10 friends each put in $10,000 and they had $100,000. They filmed the first zombie movie and it invents an entire new genre. And, uh, but when they made the sequel, Dawn of the Dead, after the Night of the Living Dead, they, they had enough money to actually put it in a mall like it was originally, uh, it was originally um, conceived, right? And because... Monster movies, in, in the way that Christians have always used monster movies, is that uh, the, monster, the monster represents something that all of us are going to have to fight, usually something inside of us that we're going to have to fight. Right? Zombies are materialism run amok. Frankenstein is scientism uh, run amok. Uh, Forbidden Planet is the dangers of Freudianism. Dracula is lust without society's limiting effects. Um, Jason from the Halloween movies is the generation gap uh, it turned into a monster. What if people came up with no memories and no traditions of went before them? What went before them? What would happen? Right? Monster movies, when used properly, are a way of revealing to the audience and to ourselves a monster that we all have to face down, that we all have to fight, and usually it's something within us, right? When we turn within, there are all sorts of monsters lurking around within us because of sin. Now, zombies and, and the temptation to cannibalize our friends and neighbors and family, um, <laughs> if you think about the, uh, the way that, that uh, God made the world and, and made us as priest kings, there's actually something really interesting about this, and it answers your question about the psalm. Um, we're going to look at Matthew 14 together. Matthew 14 says, and at that time, this is Jesus, his, his fame is growing throughout, uh, throughout the land, and it says, at that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard of the fame of Jesus. And he said unto, unto his servants, this is John the Baptist, risen from the dead. He's come for me. All of his mighty works show that this is John the Baptist, risen from the dead. Right? He's, got some, he's got some guilt issues that he needs to work through. But it explains why. For Herod had laid hold on John the Baptist and bound him and put him in prison. For Herodias' sake, Herodias just means Mrs. Herod, for his wife's sake, his, who was his brother Philip's wife. For John had said unto him, it's illegal for you to marry your brother's wife, which was true. And when, we, when he would have put him to death, he feared the multitude because they counted John as a prophet. But it was Herod's birthday, and things get wild on Herod's birthday, and so the daughter of Herodias danced before them all and pleased Herod. And so he promised in an oath to give her whatever she would ask. And she was beforehand instructed by her mother to say, give me John the Baptist's head on a charger or on a serving platter. 
and the king was sorry. Nevertheless, for the oath's sake, and because those which sat with him to eat, um, he he commanded it to be given to her. And he sent and beheaded John in prison. And his head was brought to him on a serving platter and given to the damsel. And she brought it to her mother. And the disciples came and took up the body and buried it and went and told Jesus. Now, that's a weird story. There's a couple of things weird about it. But the thing I want to focus in on that's so weird about it is that they're at a feast. or They're eating at a table. And they bring out the head of John the Baptist on a serving platter. Like it's part of the meal, right? And they deliver this severed head on the serving platter. That's weird. Even back then, that would have been considered weird. But it goes on. It says, but when Jesus heard of it, he departed from there by ship into a desert place apart. And when the people heard about that, they followed him on foot out of the cities And Jesus went forth and saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion toward them. And he healed the sick. And when it was evening, his disciples came to him saying, this is a deserted place. And the time is now past. Send the multitudes away that they may go into the the villages and buy themselves food. But Jesus said unto them, they do not need to depart. You give them something to eat. And they said unto him, We have here only five loaves and two fishes. And he said, bring them here to me. And he commanded the multitude to sit down on the grass. And he took the five loaves and the two fish. And looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke them and gave the loaves to his disciples and the disciples to the multitude. And they did all eat and they were filled. And they took up the fragments and remained 12 baskets full. And they that had eaten were about 5,000 men besides women and children. And straightway Jesus constrains his disciples to get into a ship and to go before him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. And then Jesus goes up into the mountain to pray. Now, what's really interesting about the way Matthew tells these stories is he's in the middle of telling the story of Jesus and he's been telling it all in chronological order, this happened next, and then this happened next. And then he stops, and he goes back in time, and he tells two stories side by side. And he tells us that he's doing this. Right? This is the time when, it, when Herod hears that Jesus is getting famous, and the guilt, uh, it's almost like a Shakespearean play, the guilt is plaguing him such that he hears somebody is getting famous, and he immediately thinks, Oh, the ghost of John the Baptist is out to get me. If you've ever seen Macbeth, it's very Macbeth type of scene. The ghost is out to get me. And Matthew says, and let me tell you why. And he tells two stories side by side to show the two different kinds of kings that you're dealing with. The first kind of king, Herod, he's throwing a feast and because, he, because of his fear, because he worries about other people, because he makes a rash vow, he ends up killing one of God's people and serving him for dinner. Herod's kingdom is a kingdom that eats people. But then it shows Jesus as king, uh, Jesus' kingship, the kingdom that Jesus, uh, the kind of kingdom that Jesus has. And it, Jesus is out in the wilderness with nothing but five loaves and two fish. 
and yet everybody walks away full. We've got two kinds of kingdoms here. Herod's kingdom, a kingdom where people are eaten, and Jesus' kingdom, a kingdom where people are fed. Two kinds of kings, two kinds of kingdoms. Suddenly, the imaginative, uh, the, the, uh, the imagination that comes up with the zombie doesn't seem quite so strange. In fact, though, in Galatians 5, Paul says, uh, Paul says this. He says, all of the law, this is 5 verse 14, all of the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, got it. Good. Whew. Know that one. He says, but if you bite and devour one another, take heed that you do not eat one another. Take heed that you be not consumed one of another. He says, careful not to be zombies that eat one another's brains. If you bite and devour one another, take heed that you be not consumed by one another. He says, this I say then, walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. He says, you don't want to be a body without its spirit attached. He's describing a zombie. Walk in the spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another, so that you cannot do what you would. But if you're led of the spirit, you are not under the law. But the works of the flesh manifest They are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, which is acting out of of, uh, lustful desires, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envy, murder, drunkenness, revelings, things like this, of which I told you before, as I have also told you in times past, those which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Paul says there is a way to live that treats other people as consumables, that treats other people as something to bite and devour, that you think that is, if I eat them, then I will walk away full. He says, don't live that way. That's not a loving way to live. Then verse 22, he says, but, right, so he says, If you bite and devour one another, take heed that you are not consumed by one another. And then he explains what that means. Here's all of the ways or some of the ways that we treat one another like consumables. And he says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, self-control. Against such there is no law. He says none of those things are illegal. None of the fruit of the Spirit is illegal. We do treat it like that sometimes, right? Especially patience. (laughs) We all tell people, don't pray for patience. Why? Is it illegal? No, it's not illegal. Pray for patience. You'll get it. And not even the hard way. Well, okay, you'll get it the hard way. That's how we all get it. (laughs) But, But what do you do with fruit? You eat it, right? 
Well, in this case, actually, you feed it to people. Right? He says, don't bite and devour one another. If you do, you'll consume one another. Instead, feed one another on the fruit of the Spirit. Right? The same way that Herod's kingdom is a, is a kingdom that consumes people, that treats people like consumables that you take in, that you use for your own purposes. He says, it, and then there's Jesus' kingdom where Jesus feeds people. Paul's making the same point here. If you bite and devour one another, be careful. You'll consume one another. But instead, feed one another by producing the fruit of the Spirit. And this is what it looks like to feed one another. Love. Joy. Peace. Patience. Gentleness. Goodness. Faith. Meekness, self-control, none of these things are illegal. Now, we've all experienced this before. Right? We've, we have gone, we've had something go wrong in our lives, and we don't know what to do. And we go to, somebody, we go to somebody and we say, oh, my gosh, I'm so frustrated. I'm so struggling so bad. I don't know what to do. And this person has peace. And they lend it to us for the afternoon. Or we don't have it ourselves, but they have it. And we get to go in and feed on their peace. When I was a young man, 18 years old, I did everything in my power to crash and destroy my life one summer. I thought it would be a good idea to, to do everything I could all at once. <laughs> and the, the man who had discipled me throughout high school had warned me, hey, you know, if you keep doing some of these things you're doing, you know what's going to happen, right? right? So here I am, post, post getting kicked out of school. I'm, I don't have any place to live. I don't have a job. I, and I show up at his office door in tears. And he says to his secretary, I'll be back after lunch, right? And he takes me out. I say, my, my life is over. I was emotional. Kid. Grew out of it, right? <laughs> no, I didn't. <laughs> never going to have, I'm never going to be the person that I thought I was going to be. God is done using me. He's like, you can trust God. I was like, I don't think I can. He said, it's okay. Let me trust him for you. And I sat with him and I cried in a pew in a dark church for about an hour and fed on his faith. Because I had none. I had none left. But faith is the fruit of the Spirit. We feed people on it. We feed one another with the fruit of the Spirit. Because we are priests. We stand in the gap between God and people. It's not our fruit, it's the fruit of the Spirit. We deliver it. So God works up within us peace, patience, joy, long-suffering, gentleness, love, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. And other people are fed on the fruit of the Spirit. Here's one of the things that I love about zombies. No matter how many 
people they catch and eat, even though they just are dragging one foot. They always end up catching somebody. Brains. Brains. Even you can hear them coming. But they... But that's the reality, right? Like, we would all be, we would all end up caught because we'd get in a fight, we'd be arguing about something stupid, and we'd be like, I don't even remember what the argument is about. You're like, I don't, what were we arguing? That just comes, you know what I'm saying, right? And we get eaten. But no matter how many people a zombie catches, no matter how many brains it gets, it's still hungry because eating people never satisfies. No matter how many times we bite and devour one another, we are never satiated. We are always hungry. In fact, we're hungrier because we thought we were going to get something that would feed us. We thought we were going to get something that would satisfy, but it doesn't. But it's not because we aren't supposed to be hungry. I mean, aren't supposed to be full. But it's because we're supposed to be full on Jesus. John 6, 47, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say unto you, he that believes on me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. What do you do with bread? You eat it, right? Hopefully, you guys know what to do with bread. You eat it. You guys are Presbyterians, so I know we don't talk when if I was at a Baptist church, you guys would have shouted it. Of course, you wouldn't have had me if you were a Baptist church. <laughs> I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and are dead. But this is the bread which comes down from heaven, that a man may eat thereof and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eats this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. The Jews, therefore, strove among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whosoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He that eats my flesh and drinks my blood dwells in me, and I in him. As the living Father has sent me, and I live by the Father, so he that eats me, even he shall live by me. This is that bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers did eat manna and are dead. He that eats this bread shall live forever. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Now, this is a passage that because of different debates throughout history surrounding the Lord's Supper, we know more about what it doesn't mean then we know about what it means. And in fact, I've heard a bunch of sermons on this explaining to me what it doesn't mean. Which is the worst. It's the worst. That's why we get caught by the zombies. We're busy during debating. We'd probably get into a theology debate and throw somebody to the zombies for a heretic. Yeah, you're a heretic. They'd be like, I'm the only real Christian left. <laughs> We were created 
full, or we were created to be full. But we weren't created full. When Adam was placed into the garden, he's told, look, you can eat it all. That feeling in your stomach, that's called hunger. That's on purpose. That was my idea. This whole place is edible. But as it goes on, we discover that hunger was a little prophet that God put inside of us. We were born, we were created hungry for food because we were created for more than this. And every time we get hungry, it's the little prophet inside our stomach saying, Jesus was the one who is the bread of life. God is the one who fully satisfies. We live in a poetically integrated universe in which all of it is on purpose. When we are created with hungry souls only satisfied by God. Full people don't bite and devour. So if we're biting and devouring our neighbor, it's because we haven't fed fully on Christ. Empty people will bite and devour the whole world and still be empty. But a person satiated with the bread of life will look for ways to feed others on the fruit of the Spirit because they're full. They'll look for ways to become people that produce the fruit of the Spirit because they're full. Love and joy and peace and patience, gentleness, goodness, self-control, faith. They'll look for ways to feed others because they've been fed by God. Now you are the kind of creature that the more pleasure you experience, the greater your capacity for pleasure the more joy you experience, the greater your capacity for joy. We've all experienced this. In philosophy, they call it the law of something, the law of non-returning residuals. Nope. Diminishing returns, thank you. Slipped out of my head. They call it the law of diminishing returns in philosophy. And my philosophy professor, I was a philosophy major, the University of Idaho, and my philosophy professor said, this is how heroin works. I was like, oh good, this is why I joined the philosophy department. <laughs> he said, you take a little bit of heroin and you're like, wow, that was amazing. And then you come back and you take a little bit of heroin again, you're like, not as good as last time. So you take a little bit more. So you take a little bit more, and then you're dead. Right. But he said, that's also how a great symphony works. I remember where I was sitting in the, in, uh, in the music hall at Whitworth when I first heard St. Matthew's Passion. I, I was glued to my chair. I had never heard a symphony like this before. I had never experienced a symphony like this before. And I couldn't wait to go home and pull up a CD and hear it again. And I put on a CD because it was the 90s. So I put on a CD. The internet had just barely been invented. And I sat down, I turned it all the way up, and I sat down and I listened through it again and I thought, oh my gosh, this is the greatest piece of music ever written. 
And I said, guys, to my, to my dorm mates, you got to come hear this. So they put down their video games. They came in, and I was like, listen to this. And I put it on. And the third time in a row, I was like, okay, it's not quite as good <laughs> as it was two times ago. And my, all the guys in my dorm were like, what is wrong with you, man? <laughs> and they went back to doom, too. Um, <laughs> but, and we tend to think, and the way my philosophy professor described it to me was that the more times you experience something, the less novelty there is, and so it's just not uh, as good as it was the first couple of times, because we were the ones that actually added meaning to it from where we sat. But as I've grown as a Christian, as I've experienced more, what I've come to realize is that it actually works the other way around. When you experience something amazing, you grow. But the created thing doesn't. And so when you experience it, it doesn't fill you quite to the edges the way it did the first time. But it's because your capacity to experience joy has grown. And so we hunt around and we look and we find a new thing. We experience it and we say, oh my gosh, this is amazing. And our capacity to experience joy grows a little bit more. And people get older and the created things don't fill them quite the way they used to. Because we were created to experience God for eternity. Remember what the beginning of the story was. The beginning of the story is God created us, put us into a garden, put us together and said, it is very good. Go out and garden this place. Enjoy one another. And we mess that up. But here's what the end of the story is. You were created for eternal life. And that eternal life is God adopting you into the family. The family that existed from all eternity as a life-giving community of love. For all eternity, that's what we're created for. So that little bit of hunger that you felt when you were born as a baby that made you cry was the beginning of this world whispering to you. You were created for an eternity with God. And you're the kind of creature that every time you experience joy, every time you experience pleasure, every time you experience love, you expand. And so without something that, it, that continues to be bigger and greater than you, you will be unsatisfied. But God is infinite and eternal. God, the Father, Son, and the Spirit, is an infinite and eternal community of life-giving love. And you will spend your eternal life growing in your ability to enjoy and experience that life-giving love. Growing in your ability to, to experience and give that life-giving love. Without an eternal God, we would be what Heidegger calls us. 
a joke. Because there would be no satisfaction. But because Jesus came and died on the cross, and he took away that distance between us and God, he restored us to what he said he was going to give us in the beginning, but also restores us to eternal life that we were intended for from the beginning. And resets the frame narrative, both the beginning of the frame narrative, but the end of the frame narrative, that goes off into eternity. By faith, we can bring that coming, uh, uh, that coming life into the present. Because the love and the joy and the peace and the patience, the gentleness, the goodness, the faith and the self-control is a description of what that community is going to be like forever. Because of that, by faith, we can look at what it's going to be at the end of the frame narrative, pull it into the present. We can look at our families and say, I should be more joyful. That would feed my family. I should grow in peace. That would feed my family. I should try patience for the first time. <laughs> you come home and patient with your kids, they just all pass out. <laughs> Who are you and what'd you do with my dad? Or gentleness. I guess, I mean, we're reformed, we don't do gentle. <laughs> Goodness, self-control, faith. Right? These are the things that your family needs to feed on because your family was created the people in your family were created to be a part of the family of the triune God into all eternity and this is what that family looks like this is what holds together the integrated world God created it he intended it for a particular purpose. When we tried to ruin it, he kept pulling it back to the garden, pulling it back to the garden, pulling it back to the garden. Because he has plans for it off into eternity. But if you bite and devour one another, beware, lest you be consumed by one another. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Thank you for the way that you created, the way that you put this place together. Thank you that you do have a place for each of us within it. Thank you that that place is not uh, just a simple temporary place where we fly in and fly out and disappear, but that you have an eternal place in this story for each one of us. Lord, we pray that you would produce the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. Lord, our, our deepest desire is to be people that feed one another. But you know our weaknesses, you know the difficulties, you know our stories, you know how hard it can be to break out of the habits of the flesh. Well, we pray that your spirit would dislodge us from our sins, dislodge us from our habits. That your spirit would cultivate the, uh, the fruit of the spirit in our lives, 
We pray that you would transform our families, transform our churches, transform our, our neighborhood through us. And that you would do it by uh, turning us into people that feed one another rather than eat one another. So that your kingdom will be uh, visible here on earth. Lord, we thank you and praise you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We get to do some more Q&A. Uh, what time do we need to head to the fire pit? Where's Nate? No hurry. So I'm saying after this, so we got a few minutes. Oh, perfect. Okay. So we got some time. Okay. Uh, thank you. That was, ouch. <laughs> that was convicting. Well, I was thinking of you the whole time. I know. So. <clears throat> told me you were going to be here. So was I. <laughs> um, okay, so a, a couple questions, and, then, and if, again, I'm going to ask you guys if you have questions too, so um, if you have some, think, think them through, write them down, because um, uh, I think there's so much to talk about after that. Um, let me put this to you, and then you run with it, okay? Right. So I think um, one way to, to think about, summarize what you were talking about with regards to how we feed one another, is that Christians are called to act, not react, right? We act. We don't just react to things. So when someone does something that I don't like, uh, sins against me in some way, instead of thinking I need to react with the fruit of the Spirit, I I need to react by being patient, instead taking sort of the initiative and saying, I need to feed that person with my patience. Yeah, yeah. Run with that. Right. So um, that... Uh, it, it's, it's really a, there's a couple of things, a couple of ways you can go with it. One is, um, you know, the golden rule is treat others the way you would want to be treated. And um, you, know, you think about the times that you're just riled up, right? Uh, you rarely want somebody to just yell back at you. Right? <laughs> you, want, you want somebody that says, Phew, Okay, what, what's going on, right? You want somebody that helps you ramp down. Um, uh, but then also uh, somebody that, that says, okay, there's more to this. Because it's, um, it, it's rare that there's, not, that there's not something underlying, something more to it. Um, and so you want somebody that says, okay, I care about you, and you're ramped up, and let's let's get out of this situation and get back to you know a, a better spot um, and that just and, but what we tend to do is respond in kind right you get kind of a blood feud mentality somebody says something mean to you and so you think now i'm justified in saying something mean back right blood feud mentality um, is you know you killed my brother and so i as i get to kill you um, but now, and your brother, yeah, and your brother. But now that I've killed you and your brother, your cousin comes and kills all of my family, and then I nuke your whole village, right? The, um, it it always starts with a mean word and ends with a brick in the face, and that's um, that's a that blood feud mentality where you're justifying your actions based on what they did. Right. Uh, but what we're told to do. Um, 
explicitly is we don't look at the way people treat us and respond in kind. We look at the way Jesus treats us and respond to the people made in his image in kind. Where Jesus says, if you want to return to me love, then love my image when it's in front of you. Yeah. Right? So, um, you know, if, if you've, when you read ancient works, you know, the way that you worship um, Mars or Athena is you go to their statue and their image and you leave a sacrifice there. And in the, the way that they believed, you put a sacrifice on the table of, of in front of the image of Mars and whatever you put there shows up on Mars's table up there and then he eats and forgets about you and that's what you want, right? You want him to leave you alone, right? That's the whole yep. point of bringing sacrifices to gods in the ancient world so they'll forget, they'll get drunk and forget about you. So you bring them wine. Uh, uh, but the, when we're told to not um, serve God through graven images, it's not because we're not supposed to serve him through images. It's because he's already provided the image. Right? So we return love to God through his image, by loving his image, which is your neighbor, right? which is the people in front of you. So um, so there's, there's two ways you look at it, right? One is, in a golden rule sense, you say, okay, okay, I love this person. I'm trying. Help me, Lord. Um, how do I, what would I want to do in that situation? And then also you say, and what did Jesus do for me? Right. Right? And so instead of returning in kind, you return, um, it, it, justifying your actions through what they do to you, you justify your actions by what Jesus has done and return to Jesus through his image, um, what it is that he's done. It's like you're remembering that both that person is an image bearer, but I'm also an image bearer. Right. Remember, yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm also an image bearer, yeah. and therefore I represent Christ. What did he do for me? Right, yeah. right. Good. Um, but that's why, that's why self-control has to be part of the fruit of the Spirit. Right, <laughs> right, right. Because it's okay, easier so fill, to yeah, fill, fill that out a little shins. bit more. Well, just because... We get, I mean, when somebody comes at us and gets riled up, it's hard to not get just riled back up, yeah. right? Um, but the, the only way to self-control in any meaningful sense um, is, you know, James says, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. You can't actually just, like, work your way to it. So you have to just, when you lose self-control, then that you confess it. Yeah. You go back and say... Oh, Lord, help me out. Yeah. Uh, that was a sin. I shouldn't have done that. Please forgive me. And Jesus says, I forgive you. Right? That's why he died on the cross. And then he forgets it. He doesn't treat you according to the sin anymore. And then confess it to one another. And that confession and forgiveness um, is the way to self-control. Because it has a way of, over time, God has built us in such a way that, that, that doing that, his grace then starts to put a, a, some space between our reaction and our thoughts and our reaction, right? We, that, that space gets bigger and bigger and you get more and more self-control. But the only way to do it is to have it given to you by the Lord. So you humble yourself and he lifts you up to that yeah. self-control. It's another way of him expanding you. Yep. So if, ex if he's expanding your capacity for joy through these experiences, he's also expanding your capacity to embrace the fruits of the Spirit. Yeah as you practice yeah. them, right? so you can do it more. <laughs> you can actually handle more. Um, so conversely then, if, if, if one of the ways to view our, um, our Christian calling is to feed one another, 
with you know, how, would, how did Jesus feed others. Um, contrast that then with sin. So uh, one way of contrasting it is sin is you know, devouring one another. Yeah. But I think there's also a, a way of saying that I'm, going, I'm feeding others my sin. If, I, if I'm not feeding them the fruits of the Spirit, then right. I'm also feeding them my sin. Yeah, because you're a priest either way. So you're, right. you're standing in a gap, right? It's, it's either a gap between God and, and someone, right? And so you're delivering grace. You're, you're lifting them up towards God, or you're lifting them up in some other direction. You don't have the option of not oblating, of not being a priest. So and, everybody that you deal with right. um, is you're, you're in your priestly office. And so then, if that's true, when I, when I sin, if I sin privately, um, that means I'm not practicing the fruit of the Spirit privately. And so I'm, instead of feeding the people in my community the fruits of the Spirit by putting those things on privately, I'm feeding them my sin, right. but it's just my private sin. I think it helps to make yeah. sense of the community or the covenantal effects of sin. Right. Like we, we tend to think of the church more like a block of cheese, <laughs> obviously, right? Stinky. And, <laughs> no. oh. Right. Wait, it, if you go into the fridge and you've got your big block of Tillamook Sharp Cheddar, in the black package because you got it at Costco and you open it up and, and uh, there's some mold on one edge. You cut the mold off. You don't eat that part. But then the rest of the cheese you still keep using, right? But if you open up a loaf of bread and you got mold on one end, you don't just tear the end off and then eat the rest because the mold gets all throughout. I had a roommate in college that used to just tear the end off and eat the rest. And we were like, that's just disgusting, man. <laughs> You know, there's mold in all of it. He's like, I can't taste it. It's like, it doesn't mean it's not there. Um, <laughs> whole another picture, whole another metaphor. But, the, but, but God, but uh, Jesus calls the church bread, right? He says, we are a loaf. We are one loaf. Um, and so what we do, what you do on one end has an effect that, that spreads throughout, both for good or for ill. We tend to hear things like that and immediately go, oh, uh-oh, mm-hmm. right? Um, but Jesus took your sins away, right? So your sins are forgiven. Now, when you sin and don't confess, it still does have that effect on people. But then when you confess, your confession has an effect as well, right? But so does, so, so does um, all, all of the things you do. So um, because we're, we're covenantally bound to one another, right? It, uh, the scriptures say we are knit together in love by the Holy Spirit, right? Um, so that... Uh, that communal uh, effect is for good and for ill. So, um, which is why we take time to confess on Sunday mornings and God brings things to us, right? We are a covenantal body that is confessing our sins together and God is objectively forgiving, right? And resetting our, our church um, in its relationship with Christ in that confession and in the supper. Um. You were talking about how, again, that idea of um, our capacity for joy expanding. Um, contrast that with, um, I don't remember where exactly, but Chesterton talks about how children are, uh, they love repetition, and yeah. they love repetition of the small, insignificant things that seem insignificant to us, and that that's something, and the way that he's talking about it is um, that it's something that adults um, grow out of that they shouldn't. Yeah. It's something that, they've, that they're missing. Yeah. Um, 
compare those two ideas. So he talks about an orthodoxy, and he, so he's talking about the sunrise, right? right? Why does the sun come each, up each day? Adults get bored with it, but it's because every day we die a little bit more, right? <laughs> so there, the, uh, there was a great, oh, not a great movie, there was a movie in the 90s <laughs> called Falling Down with uh, Michael Keaton, and it made R.E.M.'s song, Everybody Hurts, famous. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, it was this guy that every day he went to work and he sat in his cubicle and he died a little bit more. And on the way home one day, he got a flat tire in a bad neighborhood, and, um, and, it, and it broke him. And so then he wandered through this bad neighborhood, beating up drug dealers with a baseball bat. The end. <laughs> And then it ended with the song, Everybody Hurts, by R.E.M. Right? <laughs> and and uh, Chesterton's talking about that kind of life, where every day you die a little bit more on, um, on the inside. You, and so the sun comes up, and you start to get bored with the sunrise. You get bored with the sunset. It's just the sun. He says, but little kids who haven't spent their life dying a little bit each day, they say, another sunrise? Oh, my gosh. Right? And he says it's like... It's like when you've got little kids that want to say that uh, want to play peekaboo over and over and over. Uh, my oldest daughter Abigail, when she was nine months old, um, you know, she'd she'd put a blanket on her head. We called it the danger game. She'd put a blanket on her head and just run full speed until she hit something. <laughs> yeah, she'd sometimes she'd get hurt, and, but every time she'd hit something and she'd laugh so hard, she'd pull it off and she'd want us to look at her and clap, and then she'd laugh so hard she'd fall over. And she'd pull herself back up, put the blanket on her head again, and run. She'd spin around and then just run, and every once in a while she'd get hurt. I was like, I don't get it. But the game was so much fun that eventually we'd have to just stop her, because she would keep doing it over and over and over. Um, and uh, it says God is more like that, where he says, uh, should we send the sun up again? Yeah, let's do it. Let's send the sun up again. It's going to be amazing, right? And the sun comes up over and over. Um, where God is, and and that's, that's why you know, parents get tired trying to entertain their kids, right? Um, like when they're, when they're newborns, you're like, it's amazing. I'm going to love them forever and ever, and it's, everything is so good. And then Six months in, you're like, just go to sleep. <laughs> and we're exhausted. We're tired all the time. Right? We don't have enough life left in us uh, to entertain them and keep them because they are so uh, excited and interested with everything in the world. Right? But God doesn't get tired in that way. Right? God uh, is so full of life that the reason the sun comes up every day is because Jesus loves suns, sunrises, and so the Father sends him another. Where the, fa the Father is excited to see another sunrise that, that is sent up. So um, that there's a, a fundamental uh, life that we lose because of sin and exhaustion um, that we regain in the resurrection. I can't remember what your question was, but... <laughs> that was a great answer, though. I like that, yeah. <laughs> no, but I think actually there, I think there is something there. Um, so, so I think that's true, and there's, there's, that's real. Um, how does that compare with what you were saying, or contrast with, or fit with? Because I think it does fit. How does it fit with the idea then that um, we ought not to be satisfied with the same thing over and over again? We should, ex in the sense that we should expect God to be expanding us. So like the symphony, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. You, you can't listen to the recording of it over and over again 
and be satisfied with that. Right. But, but there is a way, there is a growth, a, a growth of soul, so to speak, that, um, that makes things more and more enjoyable when they are seen in relation to God, right? When they're seen as a gift um, from the Lord. So I think, um, I think that's the key. It's yeah. seeing it all as a gift. And that means that the, the thing that makes you expand a little more, grow a little more, instead of dying a little more, is gratitude. Yeah, is gratitude, absolutely. So there's a, um, the, this way of... This is the kind of world, so John Calvin called creation the theater of God's glory, and each of us steps onto stage and plays our part, um, but, but all of it um, is the kind of place that God's glory is put on display, right? So um, Mar- Martin Luther called it, uh, he, God, the creation is the kind of place that God can hide himself to surprise us, right? So um, that this... This, or, this created order, this kind of place, the kind of place that this is, is a place full of, of, of the, the props necessary for moments of communion with the Lord. Right? That's, that's what this place is. Right? So he created food because he likes to sit and eat with us. Right? He created us hungry so that we could have uh, communion with him, the Lord's Supper with him regularly. Right? He, he created this kind this. Um, you know, the, the, the kind of uh, forest area so that we could wander around in it, be surprised. Um, um, we lived in Santa Cruz, and in our yard, we had both a palm tree and a redwood, right? Two very different kinds of trees that bring up two diff- very different kinds of, of ideas. And uh, every day in that house, um, I would go out you know, to, to the car, and I would think, palm tree? What a, this is the perfect kind of place for people like us, right? Um, my family, is, we, we tell a lot of jokes. It's a lot of humor. My, um, we, we used to make our kids retell jokes when they were little if their timing was bad. Because <laughs> my wife didn't want any child of hers to have bad comedic timing, right? <laughs> we're not going to have that. You, try that joke again. We need a little bit more pause before you hit us with the punchline. Come on. Um, and so it was the perfect sort of house for us because you're like, get it a palm tree and a redwood in the same yard. <laughs> so if you don't get it, just think about it. You'll, you'll get it later. It'll hit you on your way down to the campfire. <laughs> All right. Any questions from you guys? So uh, just kind of from your 
how do you see maybe similarities or differences in that approach to someone who's already found their identity but it's completely wrong versus someone who's completely hopelessly realized I don't have identity? Yeah, do you want to repeat the question or summarize the question? Yeah, I will for, try. For people yeah. that didn't hear. Um, so he said when you're doing evangelism, there are people that, that have that kind of ennui. They feel like they don't fit. Um, but there's other people that have, uh, have through the, the same kind of thing that identity politics use, they've come up with an identity. They find an identity within some sort of group culture or some, some you know, I am an emo kid. I am... I don't know why that was the first one I thought of, right? Because you're still in the 90s. Yeah, because I'm still in the 90s, right? Um, you know, the, the, that we're always looking for some group to give us our identity. Um, there's a, there was a uh, so, social philosopher in the uh, 30s and the 40s that, that, act, that he was um, in Germany, and he, it was during the rise of the Third Reich. He spoke out... Um, significantly against Hitler, and when Hitler came to power, he said, oh, this isn't going to be good. So he and his wife actually, they snuck out and they ran for it and barely made it before the SS showed up, and he ended up coming to America, and he, he, uh, he said he could see some of the same things beginning to happen in America, and what he identified was, um, was people taking their taking their most fundamental identity no longer from the nation because they felt like the nation, nationalism, had failed them. And so they began uh, gathering into smaller groups of uh, that, were, that were more of a tribe, was more like a tribal culture in terms of how we identified, um, you know, how, how our identity uh, was formed. And so there were subgroups within. And, uh, and he said... It, this is how you will identify it if you see it coming. Right? There, um, you'll start to get people dressing in smaller subgroup ways. The tattoos will come back because tattoos were really not particularly popular. You'll see the rise of tattoos. You'll see you know, a body modification. Um, and so he's, he's in the 40s, and he's saying, this is how to identify when your culture is tribalizing. Right? And now... I walk down the streets of Spokane, and I'm like, tribe, 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 right? We, we, have, we have tribalized all over the place. When, um, when the evangelists in the early church in, in uh, Greece and Italy and in the Mediterranean uh, areas, when they were evangelizing around the Mediterranean, they used a lot of philosophy, they used a lot of arguments, um, they used philosophical arguments. Uh, Justin Martyr was one of the great philosophers of the day. He gets converted, and he starts uh, you know, this philosophical apologetic, and it was really effective within the empire, wh where the empire hadn't yet fallen apart. But they sent those same people off to, to evangelize uh, up into Europe, and they found tribes that... Uh, had no interest at all in the philosophical arguments, and it didn't work at all, because if you convert, it's not like I'm sh shifting something in my mind from one belief to another. I'm losing everything. I'm losing my identity. I'm losing my family. Right? And they come back, and, and uh, one of them reports 
to uh, Pope Gregory, he said, it's like plowing fields of iron up there. It's not working. I, I don't know what's ever going to happen. We keep, and and, uh, and um, there was a missionary, uh, Boniface, who he got up from his seat. He walked down to his bishop that day and said, send me to the Germans. I want to prove that God can plow fields of iron. Right? Now, he went up there. And he began evangelizing. And, it, the same, and, and there were other people sent to the other tribes. So, so Pope Gregory sent evangelists to the uh, Germans, to the, up to, to the Icelandic people, um, and he sent them to the Anglo-Saxons, uh, which were also a, a Germanic tribe as well. And every place where the, the missionaries were successful, it was where um, they converted the poets and the poets were the ones that were able to convert the tribes, right? Um, and it, it was a, such a different approach, but it was a way of, of approaching their humanity, not mind first, but story first, and um, sort of gut first. Uh, and and uh, uh, I suspect that in our day and age, as we tribalize, that our attempts to evangelize, often they kind of ring hollow and they bounce off people's foreheads um, and you just get pong, because there's not much going on up there. <laughs> right? Because the seat of our identity has shifted uh, from our head down more into our gut, into kind of a, a tribal setting. Now God created both of those, right? And so um, the, uh, the way that we evangelize, historically speaking, the way that we, the church, have evangelized tribal people is more through the arts, um, through storytelling, through poetry, uh, and um, you know, the, there was about a decade where uh, St. Augustine of Canterbury was, was preaching to the Anglo-Saxons, uh, where he had one convert, right? um, and then in two years they had 100,000 baptisms. The reason that they had to create the Book of Common Prayer was they couldn't get people ordained fast enough, and so they had to put together, this is how you do a worship service, because they had to have more worship services than there were pastors available. And so then they would have a deacon that just led them through the worship service. Um, and and it, was, uh, it was the poets that made that possible. I mean, the king was... The, the king in London was baptized, and there wasn't even a record of it because so many came through so fast that they forgot to write down which of, when, when the king was baptized. That seems like it would have been a big deal, um, but they didn't even record it. They just said, he was one of the baptisms in this month. <laughs> so 100,000 baptisms in two years um, through the, the poetic evangelism. So my, and, and that's a a different way of thinking about the humanity of a person. Um, and we tend to be stuck more in that nationalistic understanding that you go in through the mind to a person. Um, but that's, a, and that's, I think it's because as Christians, we still hold on to traditions and, nation, and our nation has a, a lot of them and that's a, that's a good thing. Um, but many people have been failed significantly identity-wise by the nation. And so um, they're, their identity is drawn from some other place. So, did that answer your question? Yeah, so it sounds like it's, it's more this approach of, like you're saying, through the arts, through poets. It's 
Well, I, I, in, in some ways, it's a, it's a false identification, but there is a place for tribes. I mean, there are, there are tribes do come in. Um, so it is a, it is a legitimate uh, identity. Um, it's, like a lot of things, it's over against, it's a nihilistic identity, meaning it's a, my identity is defined by what I'm not, um, which is what you, our political parties are, function more like tribes than political parties right now, right? Um, the, they define themselves by what they're not. They define themselves by the edges. You people are over there, you're not us. That means that that's how we know who we are. Um, and then they also use magic, I mean poles. <laughs> and I think that ties into your first talk also, or I'm sorry, the talk, the other part of your talk from this morning about evangelism. Yeah. Because where, what, uh, and this is not unique to our time, but, but in, in all eras, what really is effective as evangelism is, is not the arguments. There's a place for that. Yeah. And, and sometimes that's what God uses. But I think predominantly it's the bread and the wine. It's the whiskey and the chocolate. Yeah, right, it's, yeah. it's that friendship. It's, the, it's, it's that existential apologetics. It's the life. I mean, because if, if you're living in, if you've got a, if, if your identity is wrapped up in who your people are, and you know becoming a Christian means losing that, right. then, they, then if your offer of the gospel doesn't come with an invitation to become a part of a people, then, you know, good luck with that, right? Because they're... Um, they know that they're being offered an identitylessness, right? They get, I mean, Jesus plus no identity is still greater. And that's, right? and that's not a thing, Yeah, right? right. Jesus yeah. with no identity yeah. is not a thing, but the offer of community, that right. offer of friendship is right. part of what God uses yeah. to demonstrate Christ. Right, the, the part of his good news is the church, right. which sounds funny because we've known churches. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Churches, we are churches. We are churches. <laughs> and, I mean, churches, man. But, that, Chester, but one of the things Chesterton says is the best argument for the church is the fact that it's terrible, and yet it continues to outlast everything else, right? <laughs> that, that there is no way to look at the church and say, well, it's super well organized, and everybody <laughs> serves one another really well, and, right? Instead, right, what, what's the evidence that the, that the church exists? Well, Jesus must love this place because it's outlasted the Roman Empire. It's outlasted, you know, it, it, the, the entire force of the Roman Empire, the, the, uh, it threw itself completely at a little tiny band uh, of Christians, and it had perfected, it had inherited the arts of death from all of the empires of the world and then perfected them itself through all of it at this little tiny band of Christians and the Roman Empire was overcome by them, right? The, the, and, it, and it wasn't because of their great organizational skills. It wasn't because of, I mean, Paul's like, look, I stutter. <laughs> and, uh, right. and he says, but, but what continues to happen? The spirit of God, it loves this people. And the spirit of God protects and grows and, and, and this people, and people continue to be converted um, down to this day. And it's a miracle. I and mean, we're on the opposite side from, of the world from Jerusalem. Yeah. Um, and uh, it, it, the, the, the existence of the church is a miraculous event. Yeah. 
every Sunday. <laughs> right. right. Good. Let's do one more question. All right, let's do a psalm sing. <laughs> Th thank you, Jason. Yeah.